Want to know how Canada's top industry leaders feel about creating significant wealth in the world around them? Find out with me, Thane Stenner, founder of Center Wealth Partners at Canaccord Genuity and host of the new Smart Wealth Podcast. Available on iHeart or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now. Today, everybody, I'm Thane Stenner, host of the BNN Bloomberg Smart Wealth uh, Podcast, which is a monthly podcast where I get to interview some pioneers from various industries and backgrounds and hear their stories lessons learned, as well as tips that they're willing to share professionally and personally. My whole goal of the Smart Wealth Podcast is to have an authentic conversation, both on a personal level, but also on a professional level with some amazing people who've already accomplished a lot in their careers and have still a lot more to do. So my special guest today, which I'm actually very pleased uh, that he accepted the invitation, is David Rosenberg who's founder and president of Rosenberg Research and Associates based out of Toronto, which is an economic consulting firm he established in 2020. Pretty good timing, David, uh, right before the whole <laughs> COVID thing. Uh, before I get into David's uh, formal bio, you know, he's been, he's had a nickname of, of a perma bear throughout his career, which uh, I know for a fact uh, he has not been. He's actually been quite bullish at certain times of the market cycles, but I'm sure we'll have a few fun little uh, jousting uh, banter about that today. Uh, so David, you know, with his formal bio here, David's uh, the founder and president of Rosenberg Research and Associates, an economic consulting firm he established in January 2020. He and his team have been uh, kind of have made as their top priority is providing investors, professional investors, individual investors with analysis and insights to help them make well-informed investment decisions through various market cycles. For full disclosure, uh, our group also uh, is a subscriber uh, to David's uh, team's research. Uh, we found it to be very insightful and uh, we use it on a daily basis. Prior to Rosenberg Research, David was chief economist and strategist at Gluskin Chef and associates based in Toronto from 2009 to 2019. From 2002 to 2009, he was the chief North American economist at Merrill Lynch based in New York, where during that period of time, he was consistently highly ranked by the institutional investor all-star analyst rankings. Prior to that, and this is where I started following David uh, in his research and his insights. He was chief economist and strategist for Merrill Lynch Canada, based out of Toronto, where he and his team placed first in the Brendan Wood survey of Canadian economists for 10 years in a row. So David's a frequent contributor to most major financial newspapers and publications in North America and makes regular TV appearances in the financial media. He's received his Bachelor of Arts and Master's of Arts degrees degrees in economics from the University of from Toronto. So he has a global perspective, but he happens to be uh, based originally from Canada, from, he's Canadian. So welcome, David. Uh, I and our listeners are really looking forward to your insights today. It's uh, August 18th, 2022. And given everything that's going on, I just want to give you a full hearty welcome and uh, thank you for attending today. Well, uh, I really uh, appreciate uh, the invitation. Uh, it's been a while since you and I uh, have done something like this, uh, so uh, I'm very excited. Uh, and I'll just say that um, when people say to me, "What was the what's the best call that I've made since I started the business?" 
back in January 2020 uh, was not signing on to a long-term office lease in downtown Toronto. <laughs> Little did you know that was going to be another prescient uh, move on your part. So very, very good. Very good. So actually, why don't we start right there? I mean, what's it like running your own independent, you know, economic and research firm today versus, you know, having worked for two, you know, pretty large um respected organizations in the back uh, in your in your career path what's it like doing that well in, in a word uh empowering uh so you know look i've uh spent 35 years uh you know toronto new york back to toronto uh working on the the sell side then the buy side um but whatever side that you're working on when you're at a Bay Street or Wall Street financial institution, uh, you're really working for companies that make their living on pitching product and selling product. And um, uh, I was, uh, I think, an effective marketing tool uh, in that regard. Um, but when you're a maverick and you don't hug the consensus and you have actually uh, an opinion that might not be that popular, uh, it was actually, at times, uh, very challenging. Uh, I, I always pushed back hard when anybody tried to get me to um, state a different view, which I would never do, um, or soften the edges, uh, which is just not my style. So uh, it, it just led to, you know, at, at times, uh, on both sides, buy side, sell side, uh, towards, shall we say, some tension. So... Mm -hmm. Starting my own business, I'm, I'm not selling investment products. I don't have to, I can be bullish on one thing, bearish on another. I don't have to worry about how the investment team is positioned. Uh, and um, so, like I said, it's empowering in that way. Uh, I really, I've always followed my own voice. Uh, I'm just not being clamped down and frustrated. Uh, and so that's actually uh, uh, probably the best thing. They'll also look, uh, I put my capital behind the firm. Uh, the technology, uh, and the people. And the most important thing uh, is the team. And I have a great team behind me. Um, and uh, that makes a very big difference as well. My ability to handpick the people that I want around me uh, makes also a very big difference. So, you know, being the decision maker uh, is a, being the, the primary decision maker is a, is a whole new experience. And I can actually dedicate all of my time uh, to, the firm's clients. You know, when I was at Gluskin Chef, and I'll, I'll tip my hat, uh, that the firm let me uh, sell my research to outside parties. Uh, and we split the proceeds. Uh, Gluskin Chef clients, of course, got uh, my material for free, but outside parties and some of these parties were competitors with Gluskin Chef, but my, my services were available uh, at a fee. Uh, Gluskin Chef and I uh, split those fees. And um, it was very lucrative. Uh, we split the proceeds 50-50. I got paid a decent salary. I also got paid somewhat of a bonus. Uh, it worked out well. Uh, and so, you know, when I decided to start the business and go my own way at the beginning of 2020, and I was on these series of rolling contracts and was coming to an end around the time that Onyx bought uh, mm -hmm. Gluskin Chef, but I already had uh, my own client base for my own product. My own product was research. It was basically people wanted to pick my brain. I had 1,600 clients when I already started Rosemary Research. So it wasn't as if I was, you know, building refrigerators for the first time. I already had a stack 
uh, of, uh, of, of a base of clients. We're now up to 2,700. Uh, globally, we're in 40 countries, 70% uh, of the businesses in the States, 15% in Canada, 15% dispersed between Europe, Asia, and uh, in Latin America as well. So I guess I would just say that, you know, in my other jobs, I had a big marketing role, big marketing role. And uh, every minute you're out marketing for the sales team and pitching product is taking time away from spending time doing innovative research, mm. figuring things out. Um, so now I can spend 100% of my time on what matters to me the most, which are my readership. Mm. Uh, and so that is actually, I think, what I derive the most satisfaction is that I'm diverting my most important resource, which is my time, towards most, most important, which is my clients. Well said. Very well said. Thank you for that. Um, so let, let's roll into, you know, you, you, you've been in the financial services wealth industry for over 30 years, like I have. And there's times in which, you know, I, I've seen you make what I would say controversial calls. Uh, some people would say a little bit early, but most of the time I think spot on. When have you felt the most heat in your opinion? And I guess I'm, I'm, I'm pointing maybe the 2005, 2006, 2007 area in the US around the real estate market where you ended up nailing that prognostication from point of view of the real estate market. So um, just again, I think it'd be insightful for people listening in today to kind of hear what it's like to stand up with some conviction, but what that heat can feel like. Well, the, the heat feels like that um, you're just avoiding daggers and um, <clears throat> it's more than just that you reach a point where you're, you're doubting yourself, uh, but also whether you sacrificed your career longevity. Uh, you're quite right. Uh, I mean, um, it's not the only example, but the most glaring example of feeling intense heat was in that period, 05 and 06 and 07, uh, when I started call it, saying this was a housing bubble that was not going to end well. And I was early on the call. Uh, and historically, I'm early to a fault. Uh, then all of a sudden, when things uh, go my way, people tend to forget, oh, the guy was early. So just as you did before. But I was, I was crazy early, but I was getting more vocal as the bubble got bigger. The bubble got bigger, and I got more vocal. Uh, and uh, it was not a popular call. And of course, people believed that uh, the housing market had entered into some sort of new secular phase where it was no longer cyclical and no longer interest rate or credit sensitive. There was a new era uh, in, in housing. Um, and uh, I don't believe in new eras and I don't believe that excesses are ever permanent. Um, but that was a very difficult period um, because uh, I was at Merrill. Uh, everybody was making money hand over fist uh, over, uh, over the housing call. And, uh, and of course the amount of leverage and mortgages and so on and so forth. Um, somebody senior at the firm actually said to me that I was no longer allowed to use the word bubble. It was becoming too emotional. And I was told I can't use the word bubble anymore, find a new word. Uh, I said, well, how about, how about mania? And I was told, no, mania is fine. Oh, I said, okay, I'll just call it housing mania then. Okay, sure. Uh, so uh, it was a, um, 
you know, it, it took a while for the, and that that's just goes to show, I'm sure we'll talk about the lags between Fed policy and by the time the bad stuff hits the fan, and we haven't seen all the bad stuff hit the fan yet. We just had a couple of quarters of negative GDP. Uh, I say we ain't seen nothing yet, but I'm sure we'll be talking about that. But th th those years, 05, 06, 07, I'll tell you, uh, Thane, I, I had... Um, uh, I ultimately had a 360 uh, survey done on me. The, the firm actually had to go out. They were, they were compelled. They felt compelled to do a survey. And, um, and I passed with flying colors because there was a, a silent majority that actually thought that um, my research actually deserved to be read, even though I was, you know, you say early, but at the time when you're in the moment, I was dreadfully wrong. And uh, that was a very difficult time period. Uh, there was actually a committee set up to decide whether they should let me go. I used to come back to Toronto and I'd hear a buzz about, uh, we hear you're gonna be in the firing squad next week. I mean, it, it never happened, um, but I held my ground. Like I basically, you know, was never going to uh, think about, I'll just go back and hug the consensus because I'm gonna save my job. Uh, I, was never, I was never that insecure. But you know, when you've been on the wrong side of the call for a long period of time, and despite how strong your conviction is, there is no such thing as a sure thing. And you don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's one thing I've learned after being in this business for almost four decades. But uh, I was feeling, I was feeling self-doubt. Uh, I was feeling self-doubt, I say, by, you know, by the, but I'd say some point in the early 07, and even watching the uh, ABX indices and the mortgage spreads widened out, nothing else is really happening. And then you've got Bernanke, coming out and saying that everything's going to stay contained. Don't worry about it. Home prices don't go down on a nationwide basis. And so you're fighting the central bank. Uh, and I took a lot of heat. Uh, and it was a very, uh, it was a rough period. Um, other, I'd say the toughest part was I, I did reach a period where there was quite a bit of self-doubt. Uh, never enough to get me to uh, waver in my conviction publicly. Um, but, you know, everything is probability oriented and uh yeah there was a time period where i thought you know um what if i'm wrong and uh is it too late to get off this call i really just dug in so hard the next thing you know you know by the spring and summer of 07 things just started everything i thought was going to happen way earlier started to happen yep. but that was a uh that was a very very challenging uh period uh and and understanding the balance between um you know, being flexible, uh, but not so much that people think that you're a jellyfish uh, and um, stubborn, but not to the point where people think that you'll never change your view. It's always, a, you know, when you're a prognosticator, uh, as I am, there's always that, that balance. Mm. So in any event, you're quite right. That was a, uh, that was a really challenging period for me. Uh, mm. And, uh, you know, the one thing I became at that point friends with um, John Paulson, uh, who uh, obviously uh, made a, a ton of money uh, on the call. If you go and read his, uh, his autobiography, uh, he talks a lot about how, you know, he almost went, if, if, if things had continued to go on and, and uh, the Chuck Prince, you know, dance around the table was still going on, John Paulson was basically within weeks of going bankrupt. And then the call worked out spectacularly well for him. You read his book and you'll see, you know, on the front lines, people, I mean, not me, but people like him that actually had capital on the line is his company's capital, his client's capital. And, and I, I remember reading his autobiography talking about the self-doubt that he had. And look, mm. he was a titan of Wall Street. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was a, uh, 
it was a, uh, a very, very intense period and it wasn't, wasn't a short time, uh, yeah. but the self-doubt really, not even so much the criticism um, that I can take, but when you start thinking in your mind that like, what am I missing? What am I missing? What I try to cover every blind spot that there is, but it's not working. The call's not working. Yeah. Uh, it was a, uh, that was the tough part, the self-doubt. Yeah. Well, we're all human beings. We're all subject to, you know, we're not uh, robots, right? And investors, uh, you know, it, it uh, takes a lot of discipline to stand up and kind of, you know, back your position. But uh, challenging one's thesis is also, I think Howard Marks talks about this as a second level thinking where, you know, in essence, you're constantly, have I missed something, which is exactly what you were doing. But I, you know, again, tremendous respect for you for, for hanging in there at a very. Yeah, there, there was one other thing that there sure. was one other thing that um, when I found out when I was at Merrill that I had a nickname and it was the skunk at the picnic. <laughs> Who wants oh, to have lunch with a skunk? So I thought, OK, OK, this is war. <laughs> oh, wow now that one never permeated to me when i was at merrill but uh i was here in canada so maybe that's that's why but well that would have been an interest so okay let's go off script here for a second when you heard that okay inside what what'd you think what like take me through kind of what david rosenberg was thinking at that time uh, well, I, it, it, once I found out, it explained why whenever I was sitting alone in the Maryland's cafeteria, why nobody ever bothered to join me. <laughs> Got it. It was, yeah. uh, you know, I, it was a, um, uh, it, look, it was actually, when you think about it, it's, 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 it's pretty humorous. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I mean, what are you going to think you had, I was, I was under tremendous pressure, uh, you know, even from clients, uh, you know, to, to change my call. Nobody, I mean, if you, if you see, the thing is that leaving the equity market aside, when you're talking about a housing bubble, okay. Um, when you're talking about a housing bubble, it's like, you're looking the client in the eye and saying, your kid is ugly. You know, you say that home prices are going to decline 20 or 30%. Yeah. You're, you're, you know, your kid is. And so it was um, tremendous pushback. Um, you really have to develop a thick skin in this business. Back then, look, there, there were there, there were times when um, CIOs, uh, some of the biggest mutual funds and hedge funds in the States would get up and walk out of my meeting because they were so upset. That's the one thing I learned is that it's, um, you know, we're getting paid as a forecaster and a, and a market pundit call it. We have to make calls. Uh, they're not always going to be popular calls. They're not going to be calls that necessarily um, comport with how you're positioned. Um, but you should go out of your way. And I, I do myself, but you should go out of your way always to seek out uh, non-corroborating evidence to your own base case view, because the base case is not the only view. And so, um, you know, the, one of the learning lessons was, you know, was really developing a thick skin, uh, which you had to, I mean, there was nobody, the only other person out there at that time calling for recession was Dick Berner and Morgan Stanley, but his, his vantage point was different. He thought we we're going to have a capital goods recession. And I remember debating him saying, well, that, that capital goods recession was the recession of 01. Uh, this is going to be, this is a housing recession. 
and an asset deflation recession. Yeah. But nobody like who, you know, um, you know, uh, who, you know, and then I look, I look today at the same people. What's interesting is that the same people are out there today on Wall Street and Bay Street. All the people that got the call spectacularly wrong are still gainfully employed doing what they've been doing before. And so it also taught me that, you know, and this is, you know, I, I tell people this, uh, that uh, you pl play it safe, play it safe and um, hug the consensus and you, you, will, you will never lose your job. Uh, the problem with me is that that's just not part of my DNA. Uh, I am, uh, I'm a, almost a classic, you know, you can call about Howard Marks or Jeremy Grantham um, or even a Bob Farrell. You know, uh, one of the rules being when all the experts and forecasts agree, something else is going to happen. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the opposite. just something else is going to happen. So, uh, and, um, you know, I was schooled by the likes of Warren Justin at the Bank of Nova Scotia and um, Don Cox, Bob Farrell. So uh, I've always had uh, more than just a bit of a contrary streak. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, and that, that hasn't changed for better or for worse. Like you said before, it's more just about the timing, but I don't have the temperament of the skill set to, to run money. I don't run money. Uh, it's, uh, it's, that's not in my DNA, but I like to believe that uh, my role is to help people who actually have that talent mm. uh, to minimize their error term and to uh, try and understand and measure the probabilities across the whole spectrum uh, of what may or may not happen. You know, I would go into a room. Actually, I'll just tell you this much. I know we're going off script, but um, I, I probably learned more in my 12 years at Gluskin Chef on the buy side than I ever, than I learned in all those years at Merrill or Scotia or BMO um, uh, on the sell side. Gluskin wasn't empowering from day one because when you sit out there every single day and you're with the investment team and you're with the CIO and the portfolio managers, I finally learned what makes an institutional investor tick. I used to think I had to figure it out. You're the chief economist of Merrill Lynch. You think you're, you, know, you try and leave the ego at the door. Good luck with that. But you think you're the starting pitcher on the New York Yankees. Um, and the, but then I realized that the whole brain of a portfolio manager, uh, a wealth manager is all about what does the probability curve look like? And what's yeah. the risk return profile across every decision that's gotta be made across that continuum? And I realized I'd go to a meeting and I wouldn't even change my base case scenario. Uh, I'd say, you know, scenario A has gone from 80% to 65%. It's still my base case, but I have less conviction on that call. Yeah. Scenario B is now D and D is now C and E is now B. And, I, and everybody will be writing down. I didn't, didn't even change my base case forecast. I just changed the shape of the probability curve. Yep. Uh, and that's exactly what I learned. I learned, I think, that I can't remember who was. Maybe it was Ira Gluskin who said to me, um, okay, that's your base case. What's the next case? What's your next base case mm -hmm. after that case? And then, I, and then he said to me, uh, you, know, if you, don't, you know, if you don't have a plan B, you don't have a plan. Yeah. Well, I, that, was a, that, was a, a, that was a eureka moment for me. Just goes to show that you can teach an old dog new tricks after all. Well said, well said. Let's just take a quick uh, pause there, David, and we'll come back in a few moments uh, uh, after a break. Thank you. Want to know how Canada's top industry leaders feel about creating significant wealth in the world around them? Find out with me, Thane Stenner, founder of Stenner Wealth Partners at Canaccord Genuity and host of the new Smart Wealth Podcast, available on iHeart or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now. Welcome back, everybody. Thane Stenner here. 
I'm with uh, David Rosenberg, special guest from Rosenberg Research. Uh, we're having an excellent conversation around uh, the markets, real estate, interest rates, uh, geopolitical situation. So uh, welcome back, everybody. So here, here's an article that you penned Wednesday, August 10th, 2022 in the Globe and Mail. And the title, The Best Case Scenario for Stocks, and then in brackets, and you're not going to like it, with a little bit of a subheader, brace yourself for a 20% plunge in the S&P 500, and that's if we're lucky. So I kind of want to transition now to your views, your current views, uh, which again, uh, for people that are listening or watching this podcast, um, I would highly encourage you to become uh, you know, a subscriber to uh, David and his team's research uh, to, to get these timely insights. But maybe just talk to us about stock markets, both Canada, US, and, and even globally. And then we'll rotate to real estate and we'll rotate to interest rates and whatnot. Right. Well, look, so um, we'll, uh, we'll talk about the S&P 500 uh, to start off with. So what I'm getting at in, in this particular comment uh, about the prospect of, say, getting back down towards uh, 3,000 on the S&P, and of course, we did a lot of work uh, in the uh, first six months of the year. The first six months of the year was just purely uh, multiple compression uh, from those exorbitant levels we had uh, at the end of uh, 2021 and, and premised mostly on what interest rates were doing. Um, we haven't had the earnings recession yet. And so I would just submit to people out there that actually have a soft landing view. And I was saying this, the soft, if you had a soft landing view, uh, then the lows we saw in mid-June in mid -June were going to be the lows. That was a classic soft landing uh, correction. I think we're going into a recession. It may have already started, uh, or we might have a double-dip recession, because the first leg was really the, the uh, inflation shock, the shock of, on food and fuels uh, undercutting uh, real economic activity, and recessions are about real variables, not nominal variables. We haven't seen the full brunt yet of what the Fed has done. Uh, those lags are about uh, uh, nine or 10 months. They only started tightening in March. The yield curve just started adverting for real uh, in April. All this stuff uh, has leading properties and will lead us into the end of this year and next year. So I think a recession is a very strong likelihood. And so you have to layer on not just the compression of the multiple, uh, but you have to throw on what do corporate earnings normally do in a recession? Uh, so look, you throw, uh, I mean, we got down to a 15 multiple. I think we'll get down there again, um, at, or, or probably go lower. Uh, and then you're talking about, uh, you know, a 20 to 25% hit on earnings hasn't happened yet, but you've, people talk about how great the earnings season has been. It was less than feared, but you can see the guidance has become very spotty and the analysts are now starting to cut their numbers. Not enough yet to say that they are in the recession camp but the analysts are typically late in both directions. So um, the numbers that fall out are roughly 3,000 on the S&P. Uh, we've made a lot of headway getting back up, reversing more than half the decline. We've had powerful bear market rallies in every bear market, and this is just one of them. So you can rent them. I don't suggest owning them. And make sure you have your hedges in place. Um, so that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is just doing the arithmetic, which we did. This was a lot of hard work. This is part of the research that we did, trying to connect the dots between the financial economy and the real economy. And there's this symbiotic relationship between the two. 
And the Fed has always talked about financial conditions. The Fed has always operated through financial conditions. So it's not just what the Fed's doing on the funds rate or say the balance sheet alongside the funds rate. It's how is that affecting financial conditions? And then what do financial conditions do to the economy to get it into shape where the Fed is going to be confident that inflation is coming down to the holy grail of 2%. So we did the work on this because financial conditions is just really a euphemism for two things, the stock market and, and high yield spreads. And so uh, our work showed that for the Fed to be confident that financial conditions have tightened sufficiently to bring the economy, the demand side of the economy into alignment with the supply side, um, the base case, not the only case was 3,100 on the S&P and 700 basis points in high yield spreads. Uh, so we're nowhere close to seeing those levels, but those are the levels that'll get us very excited. We think that those will be the levels that will have the Fed, uh, you know, not just, you know, pausing, but pivoting. That probably that's probably going to be that's probably going to be next year's story. There's other things that we look at. Look, I, I write about this every day, um, and we have to make the distinction: uh, soft landing or hard landing. You're going to get a landing, and it's not going to be a, an acceleration in the economy. The best we could hope for is that we get uh, a slowdown, uh, but not a contraction. So I said, look, we can go back to previous periods where we've had the situation where there was a, a, a mid cycle correction or a soft landing you know you can point to uh, what happened in 1994 you can talk about the what happened in 1998 uh, even 1987 uh, you can talk about the Powell pivot 1990 into, into 2018 um, we have enough of a sample size of soft landing corrections uh, and quite often you can get a 20 percent correction it doesn't feel good but it's not a real bear market uh, and you can just point like I said back to late 2018 for that we're down almost 20 percent was there a recession no there wasn't i don't think you know people like to say well you know the market's down this much and the market's down that much it's enough but you can't really look at the market that way you have to take a look and always see how much of the previous either bull market or bear market condition was reversed uh, in the latest move so it's not when people say to me well we were down 23 percent in the s p that's like and the cyclical stocks are down more like 35 percent that doesn't interest you so much. What you've done from a bloated peak, uh, how, how did we ever get to 4,800 on the S&P to begin with? I mean, in a matter of less than two years, <laughs> the yeah. stock market more than doubled. I'm pretty yeah. incredible. That doesn't happen every day. I found historically, so it's not, it's about the reversal. It's about not just about the peak to trough decline. What was the reversal? Well, guess what? In a, in a fundamental recessionary bear market, 83.5% of the previous bull market condition is reversed. Okay, so do the math from the March 2020 lows to the December 2021 peak, or January 2022 peak, uh, you're talking 2,700. Hmm. Uh, if though, it's just a plain vanilla, you know, mid-cycle correction, some people call it that, soft landing, the Fed's going to get a soft landing, okay. If that's what you believe, uh, then actually 3,600 would have been the low against that backdrop. So uh, this is always a case of your assumptions drive your conclusions. Yep. But this is how um, this is how I, I more or less get to those numbers. The the Canadian market, um, in some sense, I'd say is is better positioned uh, just because it has such a big chunk in the energy space, um, which I think is is you know. It, if you're a long-term investor or just if you're a short-term investor, if you're taking a look at where the most reliable 
cash flows, free cash flow yield uh, energy. And, and actually our work showed that WTI can go all the way down to $70, which it might. And, and, and these companies will still be very rich in cash flow. Uh, so there's visibility there and Canada's got naturally just a bigger chunk of the uh, TSX uh, in the energy space. Uh, so when we are doing our work, say just our top-down work, uh, our models are actually favoring Canada over the U.S. Not that we're not that we're bullish on the Canadian market, but uh, it's a um, relative. It's a, it's a yeah, it's a it's a better neighborhood um, because of the sector composition. So would that would that lead you to be more bullish on the Canadian dollar versus U.S. dollar over the next? few years or well it's I, I well the thing is that the canadian dollar will follow energy prices and i'm not bullish on energy prices right now because i think we're going into a global recession and what, what i'm saying basically is that the energy stocks will have a buffer uh because um i mean look at say uh it's an industry that has not made the mistakes in the past they've not been spending money like drunken sailors and the capex budgets have been well constrained uh and there's um so I, I'm actually bearish on the oil price from where we are today. Look, we've already come down from 120 to say 90. I, I think we can get around 75. That's what our work is showing. Um, but uh, our work is also showing that we would only start to turn really bearish or get off of our bullish call on Canadian energy if we cross below $70. Uh, that would be a real wake up sign and that will cause us to change our view. Got so it. it's more about, so the Canadian dollar will not move on the stocks, but they'll move on the oil price. And commodities in general. On top of that, look, I'm very nervous about the Canadian housing market. I'm very nervous about the U.S. housing market, but I'm sensing that Canadian house prices are starting to come down more sharply. I mean, the Bank of Canada just won 100 basis points. I mean, as much as the Fed did, going 75, we'll see what they do in September. Uh, I mean, the Bank of Canada has gone real nuclear here. Mm. And uh, the housing bubble in Canada is one of the biggest in the world. Um, the, the U.S. housing bubble is actually bigger today. The price bubble, I'm not saying the debt bubble, but the price bubble is bigger than it was back in 06 and 07 when I was putting my fist on the table. But you see, the Canadian housing bubble is bigger uh, than anything the U.S. has ever done. This is a bigger bubble than what John Crow had to deal with in the late 1980s. Hmm. Uh, and so I am nervous about the Canadian economy because, and it's not about commodity prices, uh, it's about like, what happens if the housing market really craters? And I know people always say to me, and they, they like to say, they don't call me the sunk of the pic picnic. They, they say, I'm the boy who cried wolf, to which I say, well, remember, the wolf does show up at the end of the story. Um, so I think that I think that the housing market here, I think what, you, what, you, what you want to, if you have a view of the Canadian dollar, I understand that you, you focus on commodity prices. I think we're going to a global recession. Look at the numbers coming out of China. And, and the big torque on commodities is really Chinese demand. Uh, but the Canadian housing market, I think, is uh, really vulnerable to a nasty correction. I think that's going to force the Bank of Canada when it comes time to pivoting. And look, they'll pivot. The central banks always pivot. And they'll pivot in both directions. Interest rates are cyclical. Um, I think that by this time next year, you're going to find that the Bank of Canada probably pivoted first ahead of the Fed. And I think the interest rate differentials are going to work against the Canadian dollar. Got it. Uh, so everything else aside, you can still be actually constructive on the energy space, but have a negative view on the Canadian dollar for other reasons. Uh, the Canadian housing market is, it's, 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 uh, well, it was, it was, I mean, it's like, it's like the old saying thing. It's, uh, you know, the higher they go, the harder they fall. And uh, yep. this is, this is a different bank of Canada. This is, 
you know, Jay Powell back in March uh, in a conversation at his congressional testimony uh, with uh, Senator Shelby from Alabama compared himself to, uh, to Paul Volcker. Okay. But I, 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 you're getting a sense that, um, that uh, Tiff Macklin thinks he's the modern day John Crow. Well, yeah, yeah. just remember what, what John Crow ended up doing to the housing bubble back in the late eighties. Most people on the call might not have been alive at that point, not a pretty picture uh, for three or four years. Mm. Uh, this bubble in Canada, this real estate bubble is bigger than what John Crow had to deal with uh, back in the late 80s. And that is probably, you know, um, uh, my biggest concern as far as the elder for Canada is concerned. Yeah, I think that combination of household debt, maybe comment about household debt, um, you know, plays into that, right, at, at the end of the day. So, um, so. Earlier on, we talked about kind of base case scenario. So, and I don't want to, I don't want people calling me a skunk at the party here, but I, I also share your view on the real estate uh, bearish view. From February till now, the stats I'm looking at um, are showing that, you know, nationally and some regional contraction of around 13 to 17% down so far from February, from a, a a likely uh, pretty speculative peak. And I think Desjardins came out uh, and RBCs come out with some more cautious viewpoints between now and the end of 2023 on real estate. So give me or give our listeners kind of a, a viewpoint of what would be your base case scenario uh, forecast from here out the next 18 months in Canadian real estate. And then a worst case scenario well i i think that um i mean i, I don't have I, I i don't have those numbers on a nationwide basis is down as much as 13 percent. i think in toronto and vancouver you're probably i mean the numbers i've seen are down more like 10 percent. but let's say you're correct I, I think that the housing bubble was so big uh and if you're talking about mean reversion because when, when you say to me how did you get the call right in the u.s in the last cycle, well, because I looked at home price to rents, I look at home prices in real terms, I look at home price to incomes, yep. home price to incomes. Um, and of course, you have to adjust for interest rates. It's a long duration asset. But um, no matter, and we wrote many reports on this, uh, that you talked about a housing market in Canada nationwide. And it's not just, it's not just Vancouver and Toronto, by the way, um, that you're 30 to 40% uh, above the historical norms. And you can no longer say as you could 12, 18 months ago, oh, well, but interest rates are so low, uh, you know, do a, uh, do a discount model on those ratios, mm -hmm. but you can't do that anymore because rates are shooting up at the bank saying that they want, they, they have more to do. So uh, I think that uh, mean reversion would mean that you're going to go down at least 30%. Uh, and as much as 40, I think a worst case scenario with a full-blown recession could be down 50%. People say 50%, but you know, once again, you have to do uh, what's the retracement when you think about what prices have done the past like three years, it's been crazy. But people don't think home prices are going down 50%, but you can actually um, concoct a credible scenario uh, and maybe not a base case where that could happen. Um, and, uh, and so I would say at least 30% decline. By the way, I think the same thing in the States. In the States, I think it'll be at least a 20% decline in Canada at least a 30% decline. If you're going to mean revert these ratios and, and all sorts of unforeseen impacts this has, 
you have to trace out the direct and indirect impacts. Uh, it obviously has a big impact on consumer confidence. You know, yep. two thirds of the people in the country own a home. They feel uh, and they treat their they've been treating their house. Look, look at what people have been doing in Canada, much more than the U.S. This cycle, treating their house, uh, boring against the value of their house to buy other things, including vacation properties. Um, people have been using their house not as a place to live, but as an asset to borrow against. In Canada, we've been doing the same sort of things that that the that the nutty Americans were doing back in 05 and 06, right? Yeah. Um, and, and this is you know very unusual because Canadians typically were very conservative, but not this time. Boring against the rising value of the house, taking out short-term mortgages uh, because up until recently the mortgage curve was steep. I'll borrow. And now you're paying the price from all these variable rate mortgages. Canadians have never had so much short-term mortgage uh, exposure as they do today. It's totally, totally different than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. The old classic conservative Canadian household will throw that out with the bathwater. So you trace out the negative wealth effects on spending uh, from the decline in home prices. Then you got to counter into, look, this, this is not going to bring down a Canadian bank. However, it is going to be a constraint on their earnings. They'll have to put loan loss reserves against the decline in their principal asset on their balance sheet, uh, which are mortgages. And so what happens is that when you get home price declines, the banks start to constrict their lending activity. Uh, credit guidelines tighten up. There's a secondary impact that has on the overall economy. Uh, including the corporate sector. So there's all sorts of knock-on effects. And you trace out in the past when we've had real estate deflations. And one of the reasons why the impact on the economy tends to last quite a long time, just go back to what happened in Canada in the early 90s, is because of all the multiplier impacts. Yep. Uh, and so this is the sort of thing, if you're, if you're talking about a, a 30% decline in Canadian home prices, as you said, you know, we're call it, call it that we're more than a third of the way into this. Mm. Um, there's going to be a lot more pain. Uh, and we're not just talking about the direct impact this has on the economy. Uh, the indirect effects actually end up swamping the direct effects. The negative wealth effect on spending, point number one, the impact on, 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 on bank credit to the private sector, point number two. Uh, and so it's not just about the impact this has on residential construction, which of course is at a record share of GDP in any event. This yep. is going to be very difficult for Canada to escape, I think, a significant recession. That's why, again, I come back to uh, why I'm probably not bullish on the Canadian dollars, because if I believe that Canada is going to endure a more severe recession than the U.S., and I think the U.S. is heading into recession, um, Canadian dollar is going to weaken off in that, in that environment. Yeah. I think we should take a quick break here uh, and then we'll come back here in a few moments, everybody. Want to know how Canada's top industry leaders feel about creating significant wealth in the world around them? Find out with me, Thane Stenner, founder of Stenner Wealth Partners at Canaccord Genuity and host of the new Smart Wealth Podcast. Available on iHeart or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now. Welcome back, everybody. I'm with uh, special guest David Rosenberg here today and uh, we're having a great conversation about uh, some of his forecasts and research and comments about the market. So I know there's a lot of insights here that we're going to be uh, benefiting from. So one of my uh, early mentors in my career, I asked him a question. I said, so if you had to pick one thing to track uh, that impacts markets and you know, things, assets of different types, what would you what would you say that is? And he 
without hesitation, he said interest rates. Interest rates affect everything. Um, so I don't know if you'd agree with that sentiment or not, but we can't really have this conversation, David, without getting your thoughts on where you feel short-term and long-term rates uh, are likely to go here over the course of the next six to 18 months. Okay. So what, what would be your best prognostications uh, in that regard? Well, my favorite indicator, uh, you know, and when people ask me if I was on a desert island, and a lot of people wish I was, uh, <laughs> what, what would be the tool in the kit? And it, it's the yield curve. I guess we could debate what yield curve. I, I mean, I said at the beginning of the year, I said, I said, I said the yield curve is going to invert and the Wall Street economists and the Fed are going to say to ignore it. Check. I said, we're going to have back-to-back -back quarters negative GDP. We're going to be told to ignore it. Check. Yep. Um, but the yield curve is the quintessential leading indicator. Uh, and uh, it's not perfect. But I would say that uh, an 85% track record at calling inflection points in the business cycle in both directions mm -hmm. um, is, uh, is better than anything else you're going to find. So I pay attention to the yield curve the most. And then basically when you get the two's 10 spread, um, you know, more than say negative 20 basis points, that's been uh, not, not just like a handful of basis points. That's been a, a recession call. And then it's a matter of what's the lead time. And the lead time is usually, you know, six to 12 months. So I think that we have a central bank caught with his pants down on the inflation. Uh, I guess nobody ever defined inflation or transitory. Transitory proved to be 16 months. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sorry. It wasn't 16 hours, 16 weeks. It was 16 months. It's over. Uh, the inflation is over. Okay. Um, and the question will be how quickly will it go back down? Uh, but you see, the Fed is uh, the Fed's so embarrassed from blowing this call, uh, and a lot of political pressure. Think of the pressure that the Fed's been under from the Biden administration. I mean, the Biden administration calls this fiscal package, uh, which is really just a boon for uh, clean energy and electric yeah. vehicles. They call it the anti the the uh, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is yeah. a bit of a joke. Uh, yeah. But you can so, see that the pressure. Yeah. Is it, well, it's, it's political because uh, Biden's been blamed for the inflation. So mm. he's, he's one of the few times ever, maybe the only time where the administration has pressured the central bank to tighten monetary policy, the exact opposite of what Donald Trump was doing just a few years ago. Um, so the yield curve is my favorite indicator. Uh, and uh, you tend to find, by the way, people say, so help me identify when we get to the lows in the stock market. The lows mm. in the stock market if I'm right about the fundamental recessionary bear market, uh, we're two thirds of the way through the recession. Uh, the market is looking ahead because they see the whites of the eyes of the recovery. But you see what happens is that it's late in the Fed easing cycle. The Fed said they're not even done tightening. And people are saying, it's funny. People say, don't fight the Fed. The whole way, 2020, 2020 don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. Now you're talking to these market bulls. Uh, well, aren't you fighting the Fed? <laughs> They're steeping the yield curve back in 2020, 2021. And I can understand, don't fight the Fed. But now they're inverting the yield curve and tightening into it. The last central bank to tighten policy into an inverted yield curve was the Volcker Fed. Did you want to be risk on during those periods? I don't think so. Um, so the recessions, the recessionary bear markets end when the 210 spread is positive. The Fed is re-steeping the curve and... Uh, and usually this is the average and the median plus 140 basis points on the 210 spread. That's the, um, that's the all clear signal.
uh, and hopefully that'll happen next year. Where do I see rates going? Uh, I think the Fed has uh, locked itself into September. I think September 2021, their meeting. Um, the debate, there was a debate, will they go 75 or 100? And now it was 50 or 75. Now I think the debate, especially after the dovish set, I thought it was a dovish set of FOMC minutes. They paid lip service to inflation. But if you read the minutes, Dane, you'll see they hit yeah. off right away with downside risk to the economy, downside risk to the economy, downside risk to the economy. Well, here's the deal is that they're telling us that they're at neutral. They're telling us at 2.5%, the funds rate is at neutral. Well, how many central banks in the past um, go from neutral to restrictive when they're also telling you that the downside risks in the economy are accelerating? Okay, that's not too rational. Um, they might go 25 in September. That's not even in the market. I think everybody's still thinking they're going to go 50. Where they go 25 or 50, who knows? Uh, I mean, there's still quotes data dependent. We still have another non-farm number. We still have another set of PPI, CPI. We'll see. They say they're data dependent. But we see the way the data are going. We see the way that they're going. We, we got a Philly Fed index today, and uh, we're down below 50% on the pricing indicators. Less than half of the companies are actually raising prices. Um, so I think that they go in September and I think that's it. I don't think they're going to three and a half. I don't think they're going to four. Uh, I think that September is going to be it. And people look at me like I'm crazy, but you know, um, I've had that people look at me like that before. The thing is that if I'm right, there's a, a boatload of money to be made, uh, in uh, the yield curve, as you said, and the Euro dollar contracts at the front end of the treasury curve. So I think that historically, look, they're going to pause. I think people are crazy to say they're not going to pause. They always pause. And then after the pause comes the pivot. Uh, now, they don't usually pivot right away. People say, well, they're not going to, even when they pause, they're not going to cut rates. Even when they pause, they're not going to cut rates. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. There's only been two other times in history where the Fed actually flipped on a dime. And it was Greenspan in 87 with the stock market crash when I started in the business. And believe it or not, Paul Volcker um, cut rates within a month. Of, of, uh, of pausing back in uh, 1983. Uh, and so you know, Paul Volcker, the inflation dragon slayer, pivoted and cut very quickly. People don't yep. do that. But uh, you know, I know the history of this stuff. Yep. Um, so I think that um, uh, the average, the, the, the lag between going to the pause button and then cutting rates, uh, that lag is about eight months. So I'd say they're on hold after September. I'd say by the summer of next year, they'll be cutting interest rates. People can't believe it. Well, how do you know? Inflation's going to melt. The economy is going to be in recession. What central bank doesn't cut rates? They're still going to be worried about their credibility because of inflation caused by mostly a pandemic and broken supply chains from two years ago. That's going to influence their decision on what to do with rates in 2023, to which I say, give me a break. Mm. So I think that they'll be cutting rates, re-steepening the curve. Um, I think that, um, so, you know, where does the, uh, the curve steepens? The front end rallies hard. The most money will be made in long dated zero coupon bonds. Uh, and I think that uh, we'll, we'll probably this time next year have the 10 year note. Um, I'd say well below 2%. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised. I think actually we'll get down to 1.6. You'll look at me and say, 1.6 in the 10-year note, how do you get to that? Well, because I'm really a historian, and I believe that history rhymes. Mm. And when I said before about um, what it takes to achieve the lows in the stock market, and, and I had mentioned 
uh, you know, that usually happens in the sixth or seventh inning of the recession and the feds re-steepen the curve. Uh, the 10-year note um, uh, at the stock market lows is typically down 160 basis points from the high. Mm. That would take you down to 1.9%. You see, the thing is that people say to me, what should I do if I want to start turning bullish on stocks? I said, well, you have to buy the asset class that went into the bear market first, which is bonds. And then bond yields will rally. They will give relative valuation support to the stock market. And at that point, um, you want to start turning bullish on equities, but you want to, you want to basically be mindful that the chicken comes before the egg and the mm. chicken is the bond market. The other point that I would make is that historically at the lows, something very funky happens at the stock market lows, which is that the 10 year treasury note yield and the S and P 500 dividend yield converge. Well, right now the S and P dividend yield is 1.6%. Uh, the 10 year note is 2.8%. Maybe there's a, a meeting in the middle. Um, but these are the metrics I'm looking at. So suffice to say that right now, if I have cash to put to work, look, there's things that you could buy in the stock market, be very selective. Um, but the bond market is, uh, is where I'm concentrating on. I think that if you're a gifted trader, um, you know, there, there'll be a lot of money to be made on the Fed call at the front end of the curve, playing a steepener. There's different ways you could do that. Uh, or going long uh, these euro dollar futures or Fed funds futures contracts that are priced for the funds rate to go to three and a half or mm -hmm. higher. Uh, so there's different ways you can play this. But generally speaking right now, I am actually very bullish on the treasury market. Uh, the biggest bang for the buck, but of course you're taking on the biggest uh, duration risk is of course uh, the 30 year uh, yep. or, or, um, uh, or zeros. That's where you'll make the. You could probably on this call make forty percent at the long end of the curve, under the proviso that I'm right. But what I'm seeing, I'm seeing inflation peak. I mean, we have stuff. I mean, copper's melting. Uh, the base metals are melting. Uh, shipping costs. People don't realize shipping costs are down to where they were pre-COVID. Uh, and uh, the labor market will follow. Yes, we have wage pressures, but the labor market will follow with a lag. The leading indicators, the leading indicators for inflation are rolling over. The money supply numbers in the United States are contracting. Nobody talks about that. And fiscal policy, I mean, the U.S. deficit is down 70% so far this year. Who talks about the fiscal drag on top of the monetary drag? Does anybody know that U.S. government spending is down 20% this year? That's part of the economy. I could see the members of the Tea Party or the remnants of the Tea Party, what's left of it, doing a big dance. Mm. Um, inflation is going to absolutely melt in the coming year. Uh, the market's not priced for that. Um, and uh, the Fed is going to be looking at that and looking at a very weak economy. And mm -hmm. what choice will they have but to cut interest rates? Um, and I think this could be, it's a matter of timing. It is going to be next year's story. Uh, and then all this happens and I turn very bullish on the stock market again. Uh, and that's what I'm waiting to do. And the stock market tends to discount, you know, Stan Druckenmiller did a uh, interview about a month ago and he kind of said, you know, he tries to figure out where, where the economy and where companies are going to be 18 months from now. And that's kind of where his mindset is, you know, from evaluating. Well, yeah. I think 18 months from now, well, there's going to be lots of things happening. You know, it's, it's like, you know, you could have talked about ET, you know, at the peak of the dot coms, you know, yep. back in early 2018 months, it was a roller coaster ride. It was a meat grinder. And then you could talk about the peak housing and uh, look, the stock market peaked um, October 2007. The next 18 months was another just pure, it was a roller coaster ride. And I think they were going to have another roller coaster ride. Um, 
you know, the point I'm making is that look, we got another, another number today. You asked me before about my favorite indicators. Sometimes I even say, what do you need an economist for? The conference board releases every month the leading economic indicator. A hodgepodge of nine different market and real macroeconomic variables put in this indicator. That goes back to 1959. Bain was actually even before I was born. <laughs> and um, so it's covered a lot of cycles. And yep. um, we just got the numbers today uh, for July, negative 0.4, down five months in a row. Five months in a row, decline of the LEI, leading economic indicator, by the way. The yield curve is one of the principal components of that. Mm. Uh, and that's a that's that, that that's hundred percent recession signal, and yeah. the lead time the lead time is um, is around ten months, and so the LEI peaked back I think it was uh, probably in February March of this year. It's telling you that uh, we're going to have recession by the fourth quarter. Now you're going to come back and say, well, didn't we get back to back quarters of negative GDP? And I'm saying yes, we did. Although it's not clear, and a lot of people are making the case that it was not quote a real recession. Mm. Um, and it's just a colloquial rule of thumb anyways. Uh, the economy, we all know, that we're not going to argue about is the economy weak or not. It's weak, but maybe not a technical recession. Mm. I don't really care. You know, we do know that the first half of the year was the big squeeze from the massive inflation, which crushed the real economic variables, right? Um, and so, I mean, you're seeing that, you saw that even on Walmart's numbers, people were gushing over Walmart's numbers, right, this week. But what the, you know, you're seeing um, the high-end consumer shopping at Walmart, they're trading down, right? They're going towards private label away from brand label. Yep. And most of that, by the way, what was most of the growth at Walmart sales? <laughs> they're the biggest food retailer in the world. It was, it was in food inflation. So you're seeing food and you're seeing gas. We're going to get some release, obviously, on the, on the gasoline side. But the first half of the year was not about the Fed. It was about this crushing inflation shock. We had a huge shock. Um, the Fed shock comes next. We haven't seen the full impact because uh, the Fed operates with a lag. The leading indicator contains all that. The leading indicator is called leading because it leads the business cycle by around 10 months. It peaked earlier this year, down five months in a row. What more do you need to know? That even So if it was a recession in the first half of the year, we're having a double dip. And if it was not a recession the first half of the year, um, then we're recession starting by the fourth quarter. The mm -hmm. LEI is unequivocal in that call. I'm paying very close attention to it. Do you know why? And I'm slicing it and I'm splicing it and I'm dicing it. And I wrote a whole report on it this morning because of its track record. Mm. Okay. So, um, yeah. And so, and uh, uh, I will tell you that even the Volcker Fed, even the Volcker Fed, okay, sliced rates dramatically in a recession. Mm. Um, people are saying, well, but the inflation well, hasn't gone down to 2% yet. They're, they're not, they're not going to wait for inflation. They're they talk tough on inflation because they have, they're not going to wait for inflation to go to 2% as the economy slips in a recession. Even the Volcker Fed crushed rates mm. and you want to be long the bond market. And I want to be ahead of that. Yep. Well said. Two last questions for you because I'm being mindful of your time and uh, so as far as geopolitical, we haven't even talked about Ukraine and Russia and, and, you know, China and Taiwan, like just in a, do you think most of that is priced into the markets at this point and any other thoughts around that? I think so. I, I well, I don't know. I, I think that, um, 
you know, what happens in terms of, uh, quotes, the balkanization of, uh, of Ukraine and, um, you know, how that's going to play out, um, what will come under Russian control when all is said and done, that all remains to be seen. Uh, it's very clear that uh, there's going to be some partitioning. And then we'll have to get used to what the future is going to look like for the developed world without Russia being part of the world order. They, 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 will, they, will, be, um, they will be pushed aside, uh, much like Germany was pushed aside after World War I. Mm. Um, so uh, we actually also wrote a report on what life looks like uh, without Russia. Uh, I think that, you know, when you're taking a look at the fact that commodity prices are coming down, um, the constraints, considering how big a uh, export of Russia is in terms of, uh, and you could argue the Ukraine in terms of food and fuels, puts a floor under these commodities. Uh, it's hard to really make a, uh, another big market bet coming out of it, except for the fact that, you know, when you mentioned China, uh, and now we've got, you know, China, Taiwan, we got the Russia situation. Um, we have a, a world where there is a real vacuum in terms of, of leadership. Um, the pandemic has also caused more in the way of uh, countries moving inward. Like look, look what's happening, for example, this is economic warfare, this so-called Inflation Reduction Act, this whole move towards incentivizing semiconductor production in the United States comes at the expense of Asia. You can see what China's reaction is. Yep. So I'm not saying that we're going into a whole new world of protectionism, but at the margin, globalization is shifting. Uh, and uh, that creates its own, as you said, um, not a chaotic environment, but it's something brand spanking new. What's happening around the world in light of this is military budgets are going up. Uh, Germany, for example, look at what's happening in Japan. Yep. Um, Japan is expanding its military budget the most in the post-World War II era. The era of pacifism in Japan is over. You're seeing military budgets, defense budgets, even in Canada. Uh, and you're looking at what's happening in the States. And uh, actually, very quietly, defense aerospace has made you money this year in, in what is still a bear market. Um, so I'd say that's an investable uh, secular growth being re-rated for secular growth. You know, we've got the drillable goods orders uh, for the United States uh, this past week in industrial production. Uh, the data for the defense aerospace uh, industry. Uh, I mean, if every, if every sector of the economy, of course, housing's in a deep downturn in the US, but if every, if every part of the economy was doing what aerospace defense is doing right now, uh, we'd be in an economic boom. So that's an investable idea coming out of your comment. The China situation um, is... Uh, China is going through a prolonged period of structural weakness in their economy. Uh, part of it, by the way, is deliberate, um, but part of it is that they're still working through uh, this incredible property bubble uh, that's having a big impact also uh, on their debt markets. But I'll tell you right now that China, geopolitically, I mean, who knows? Uh, and uh, this China-Russia alliance, uh, obviously uh, pretty disturbing. Um, you can call it a new Cold War if you want. Uh, we've been in an economic Cold War with China for, for many years, and I think that's probably going to continue. Mm -hmm. The big deal about China is that their economy is slowing down precipitously. Uh, over and beyond just their very aggressive COVID zero policy, um, they are in a huge debt trap. And uh, their property market, uh, I mean, I talked before about how Canada is so reliant on real estate. 
I always call Canada the triple C economy, right? Uh, crude, condos, and cannabis. There's, there's the triple C. And, uh, but China as well, the property market bulks so large. Um, and this Evergrande issue has continued to spread. Uh, look at where the Chinese, uh, you want to talk about a bond market that has been rallying like crazy. Every other bond market, look, look what bond deals have done this week. And look, in, the, in post the UK 40-year high 10% inflation, Chinese bond deals are going down because mm. their economy is sinking again. And that's one of the reasons why you got to be a little careful here about your view on commodities uh, cyclically and your view on the Canadian dollar, because there's a direct link right back to Chinese demand, which is starting to uh, slow down, if not contract. So my big concern about, uh, this is what I said before, about the, 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 I see the principal risk, not just of a U.S. or Canadian recession, but a global recession. And uh, I'm looking at things happening in China right now from a macro standpoint that leave me a little bit queasy. Gotcha. So what would you say, this final question for today, uh, what would you say would be the top two or three headlines we're going to see over the next 12 months? Well, I think you're going to be seeing um, recession move from a forecast to a reality, uh, and that's going to include job loss. So you'll be reading more, which what you haven't read is the next shooter drop, which is rising unemployment. Um, so you're going to see a lot of that. Uh, it's not a pretty picture. I understand that. You're going to see a lot more about um, the, um, the rolling over in the real estate market, uh, principally residential real estate. That's going to be a very big deal. Uh, and that's going to have an impact on, on financials. Uh, but I think home price deflation, I mean, you just mentioned the past couple of months. I, I think that, is going, that story is going to accelerate. Mm, uh, and, um, and I think that, uh, you know, the third one is that the surprise will be, by definition, uh, that just as inflation shot up and surprised most of us, I guess, I guess not Larry Summers, but who's smarter than him. Um, but I think inflation is going to come crashing down next year. People tend to forget we had the big inflation boom in the summer of 2008. Of course, that was when oil prices were heading towards $150. People were ignoring, uh, you know, uh, the housing, uh, the housing situation. People didn't even think we we're in a recession uh, back in the summer. In fact, the, the, the Fed was on the precipice of raising rates under Bernanke in the summer of 2008. And uh, the ECB had already done so under Trichet. Quite incredibly, people don't remember that just before Lehman collapsed, yep. the ECB raised rates. Um, yep. Inflation went from almost 6% in the summer of 08. A year later, it's negative two. And if you had that forecast that we're going to, we're going to deflation in the coming year in the summer of 08, well, because I lived it. I lived it, okay? Yep. Um, you would have been carried out in a gurney. Yep. So I will say that uh, this time next year, we will be talking yet again about deflation. And that's why, I, that's why my biggest call is the 30-year treasury. Got it. Right. Rates dropping because the economy is tanking in essence. I think so. And I think that we're widening the output gap. We're going to get unemployment. Everything that we're talking about today, just that's the way it goes, right? Who's talking about big inflation back in, yeah. in 2020? Who's talking yeah. about big inflation? Uh, even in the early 2021, now we're just all talking about big inflation. We talked about massive acceleration in the economy and a huge bull market in equities and in credit, of course, because we had tremendous easing in monetary and fiscal policy. That movie is all rewinding. It's in reverse. Mm. The one thing that I want to just stress, and, and I think that 
everybody on the call really go to the Fed's website, pull up the FOMC minutes. This was a different set of FOMC minutes than we've seen. And there was two commentaries on the policy lags. All of a sudden, the Fed, the brain trust of the Fed, this was, did not show up at any other time. It showed up the same meeting that they hiked 75 basis points, that they're acknowledging that there's policy lags and they're concerned that they have overdone it. Now, it's not stopping them because they're committed to a September rate hike. How big? Who knows? Yeah. Policy lags. Policy lags. So all this stuff hits home in the next 12 months. That's what I'm talking about. It's like people breathe easy. In 2006, the Fed stops raising rates. Oh, I'll breathe easy. Look what happened the next 12, 24, 36 months. Mm -hmm. you know, the, Fed, the Fed went on hold in the spring of, of 2000. Tech yep. wreck on hold. Oh, breathe a sigh of relief. Then the recession starts in March of 2001. Mm. Um, so the same thing happened. Go back every cycle. People are gonna people are gonna think when they pause, gotta buy, gotta buy the market. It's a short-term trade. Even after the first rate cut, when they when 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 Greenspan cut rates in her meeting on January 3rd of 2001, because of course he had thought that what we had was an inventory problem in technology. He didn't realize we actually had a detonation of the technology capital stock, but Greenspan figured it out. Cut rates intermeeting January 3rd of 2001. The market was up 5% that day, okay? And then you're down like 40% to the lows in the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, and the recession started in March of 01, two months after the Fed cut rates. Go back, when did the Fed cut rates? I, I was at Merrill. The Fed cuts rates in um in september of 2007 i mean you were there for that yep yep the market ripped three percent that day they cut rates september of 07 did you really want to buy the market for the next one or two years it was a head fake yep. so i'm going to say right now if everything i say comes to fruition the fed will be cutting rates the headlines will read that the market's going to surge no actually uh the market bottoms after the last rate cut, not the first rate cut, when they've yeah. re-steepened the yield curve. Yeah. And I'll be writing more and more about that. And I think that'll be more for next year's story. I think next year, once again, I'll finish off positively. What I'd like to think that I'll be writing about in the second half of next year is that everything that we've been talking about, Thane, gets priced in and then some. Yeah. And the second half of next year becomes the great buying opportunity. Excellent. Well, that's a great way to finish, David. Uh, thank you very much for your time on behalf of everybody uh, listening in on this uh, BNM Bloomberg uh, Smart Wealth podcast. Uh, thanks for sharing your valuable uh, insights and time today. Thanks once again, David. Uh, it's great seeing you again. Likewise. Thanks. So thanks to David Rosenberg once again for that excellent interview. I know uh, this will get a lot of uh, positive reviews. He, his firm, Rosenberg Research, does offer a one-month uh, free trial uh, subscription. Uh, so please do look up uh, his group uh, to be able to participate in that. It's an excellent, excellent amount of research uh, and program. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, our group also uses his research on a daily basis. My next guest next month is Dr. Sherilyn Hale who is one of the most strategic thinkers and planners when it comes to helping uh, wealthier donors uh, make significant contributions to different things that are 
near and dear to their hearts. So uh, I'm really looking forward to having Sherilyn uh, on as my guest next month. So please do uh, listen up um, for our next session. Thank you very much. The comments expressed in this podcast are the results of work done by Stenner Wealth Partners. They may differ from the opinion of Canaccord Genuity Corp. and should not be considered as representative of Canaccord's beliefs, opinions, or recommendations. All views expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. The statements expressed herein are not intended to provide tax, legal, or financial advice and under no circumstances should be construed as a solicitation to act as a securities broker or dealer in any jurisdiction. All views are intended for general circulation only and do not have any regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or general needs of any particular person, organization, or institution. Can Accord is a member of the CIPF.